Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today, I'm talking to the American historian Jill Lepore about the last few years of American history, particularly American political history, and just how strange have they been. Are they typical? Are they not typical? And of course, what part has Donald Trump played in all of that? Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, and you can subscribe for a special rate if you go to lrb.me slash ppf. Subscribe at lrb.me slash ppf. Jill, reading your essays, I got this sense, and you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong here, that... What is exceptional about the last 10 years of American history compared to other places is that it's not exceptional in American history. So what I mean by that is, if you took somewhere like Germany, say, the 2020s and the 1920s are completely different from the 1930s. The the level of violence, the brinkmanship, the ways in which it could all fall apart. It's probably true of Britain as well. But What's happening in America, what has been happening recently, is completely familiar in lots of ways. The violence, the brinkmanship, the sense in which it could all fall apart. Is that fair? That it makes America unusual that this decade is not an unusual decade in American history? So I think that's mostly fairly stated. I do think the last decade's been unusual in the U.S., in the same way it's been unusual all over the world between the pandemic and climate catastrophe. But in the U.S., I do think there, we have a long history of political violence and political intolerance that waxes and wanes, and we are in a very tough moment historically for sure. But I think unless you accept a very whitewashed version of American history, this is not as bad as it gets. And this is not all that unusual. And I don't, as a historian or as a citizen, take comfort in that, but I think it's worth paying attention to it. So if we look at the violence, I'd always assumed, like you, actually, that some of the sense that this is an unusually violent time is exaggerated. And certainly by some measures, like political assassination and so on, this is not the worst of times. But gun ownership and the fact of gun ownership, when you look at this from outside the United States, and what you might call the level of background violence in American political life, does feel completely alien to people who aren't. American. And yet it is familiar from the long American story. And you tell some of that story. I mean, you've written about it a lot, the history of gun violence. So how, just just frame it for us, how unusual is this decade relative to that longer story? Well, one of the more interesting theories I've heard to account for it is worth thinking about at the outset, which is 
the U.S. is backwards in one significant way relative to Western Europe and, and really much of the world in that we became a democracy before the state asserted a monopoly on force. So that in Western Europe, the civilian population was essentially disarmed as a matter of uh, the emergence of the nation state. And then those nation states became democratic. And in the U.S., it's sort of backwards, which, which is sort of why we have our Second Amendment, uh, the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that guarantees a, a right to bear arms for the sake of a well-regulated militia. That that exists is a kind of weird historical artifact of that emergence of the idea of self-rule in advance of the idea that civilians shouldn't own arms. And it, it just we've kind of never got past that backwardness in terms of the sequencing of such things. But gun ownership in the U.S. has been rising for some time recently. Paradoxically, every time there's a mass shooting, gun ownership has a surge or gun purchasing has a surge. And the way that I think about it in recent history, say the last 50 years, is that you could think about the gun rights movement, which emerged beginning in the early 1970s, and the abortion rights movement, which dates to that same moment as being two sides of the same coin and both being drivers of polarization, which itself is a kind of driver of political violence. So that what happened starting in the 1970s was that gun rights and abortion rights, which are both constitutionally weak arguments, but for quite different reasons, were used by political consultants and political campaigns as drivers of voting to get out the vote because they're both very emotionally charged. And so you could sort of, you can make a little chart of, you know, where you have kind of guns and abortion on the x-axis. And then if you picture on the y-axis, freedom and murder, the way that political campaigns rhetorically employed these issues was to say, on the right, guns are freedom and abortion is murder. And on the left, abortion is freedom and guns are murder. And that that schism really drove political polarization, but also drove political violence. I mean, if you think by the time you get to the 1980s in the U.S., uh, abortion clinics are being bombed, medical professionals who perform abortions are being murdered, that these two issues really have driven Americans to the political extremes. There are other, plenty of other issues as well, but it's this sort of life and death feel to them so that at this point, every time there's a mass shooting, which, you know, not not a few days passes in which there is not. The drive of kind of the paranoia that the left is going to seize and confiscate everyone's guns drives people to buy more guns. So we're just the kind of escalation of intolerance and kind of paranoid fantasy is really now kind of the daily habit of American political life. So there's a long story there and a short story. So that long story, which is the one, as you say, makes the United States very unusual, a democracy before it became a state. But another way to put that is it acquired a constitution before it acquired a standing army. There it is. It's written in the constitution that this is about a militia. And that's the reason for the Second Amendment. 
this is the basis of political order, which would have been true in England in the 18th century, but it's not true later on. But that's still the reference point for these arguments. It's there in the constitution. But the gun issue is not now about a militia, right? No one can make the defense of gun ownership on the basis that this is the grounds on which people will arrange a militia when it's needed. And I was really struck by your account of what happened to the NRA because, and it did remind me of the abortion story in the way that in the late 60s, not only was the politics not so heated, but it wasn't dressed up as a grand matter of principle. The politics around abortion was quite pragmatic in the United States in the 1960s. And the NRA was a relatively pragmatic organization. And then it was weaponized. And the abortion story is the 70s and the weaponization of the NRA is, is the 80s, particularly, I think, on your account. What is it about American politics that makes it so open to that kind of weaponization? And then these things get turned into principles. So it's not like there's this grand principle of gun ownership, and we will use that grand principle to get our vote out. It's we will get our vote out on gun ownership or on abortion. And then we will persuade people that it's a grand principle, even though 10 years ago, it wasn't a grand principle at all. It was just, you know, it was just a another pragmatic question. And it doesn't right. seem to and, happen anywhere else quite that way. Yeah, yeah. And where these matters can be settled in other ways, and not the kind of all or none politics, like sort of murder or freedom politics is how I think about it, that all or none element to it. Well, part of it is our constitutional system. And part of it is the nature of rights arguments in the U.S. There's actually a great book by the Columbia Law School professor Jamal Green called How Rights Went Wrong, where he does this comparative work to look at a series of, of rights issues that are just volatile in the U.S., but not elsewhere. So among them is abortion. So he looks at the sort of same-sex marriage or gay rights cases or LGBTQ cases in the U.S. and Germany and the U.K. And, you know, his sort of point is in the U.S., these cases go to judges, and judges can really only make all or none decisions. Either you win everything or you lose everything in a rights argument that goes before a judge. There's no, there are no halfway measures to settle such things. So either a fetus is a person under the law and has entire rights, or a fetus is not a person under the law and has no rights. Like so, just or a woman has a right to an abortion or does not but that these cases can be worked out differently in other forms of arbitration and un under other statutes in other countries. And part of Green's argument, and I would certainly agree with this, when legal scholars talk about in the U.S. the rights revolution of the 1950s, so in 1954, the Supreme Court decides Brown v. Board of Education and says segregation is unconstitutional. And at that point, instead of seeking to amend the Constitution to incorporate rights for previously rightless groups or poorly enfranchised groups, people on the left stop trying to amend the Constitution and they decide that going to the court to get guarantees of rights is the better move. And the court is liberal at that at that point. It's the liberal Warren court that passes, you know, that passes decides Brown v. Board of Education. And so there are a series of Rights seeking constitutional cases in the 1960, in the 1960s and 70s, beginning with Griswold versus Connecticut 1965, which decriminalizes birth control, and down through Roe v. Wade in 1973, which decriminalizes abortion, that 
the left is very happy with, right? You could kind of go to, you could go to the Supreme Court, or the Supreme Court will say you can have these rights. And that has a kind of absolutism to it, but it also means that there is no, there's no kind of democratic function to people settling these deep fundamental issues. It comes to be useful politically. It's illustrated again and again and again that that strategy can be used by the right. And so increasingly by the 1980s, you see the right using that's sort of the whole gun rights argument was, oh, we watched, you know, people on the right watched the advances of civil rights through a legal strategy that involved going repeatedly to the Supreme Court, getting the Supreme Court to interpret rights differently. People on the right say, oh, we have our own like sort of white rights issue and it will be guns and we'll go to the Supreme Court and we'll change the Supreme Court and we'll seek out a new interpretation of the Second Amendment so that we will have the same success electorally driving our politics by way of the Supreme Court. And so now we have this kind of hyper-polarized political discourse around the Supreme Court and a loss of faith in the Supreme Court, and everything somehow devolves to a rights fight, when really, most issues are really just not rights <laughs> rights fights. Like, gun ownership is a policy, it's a public health issue, abortion is a public health issue. Like, there's so many frames in which we would ordinarily discuss these things. Like, rights is just not naturally, you know, how I would think about, for instance, human reproduction. I would think about that in a health context, I think, naturally. But in our polarized, hyperpolarized political environment, the way political strategy has evolved and the fact that the, so many things require constitutional interpretation means that so many of these kind of policy issues go through the courts and the court wants to look at them as rights issues, and then that contorts our, our politics. And then when you get stuck in that kind of politics, it's really hard to see how you get out of it, because you're not going to change the Constitution. The, the possibility of new amendments seems extremely remote. The Supreme Court is now set up in a way that for a decade or more, it's going to be propitious for the right to take their cases to, to the court, whatever happens in electoral politics. It feels like it's both stuck and it could get more dangerous. It, I mean, it's not obvious what takes the temperature down here. Oh, yeah. No, it could get more dangerous. I mean, when you say, uh, okay, so the Second Amendment, really, there are three arguments you could make about it, that that it guarantees the right to form a well-regulated militia as a kind of quasi-state body, that it guarantees an individual right to, to, to own guns, or that it guarantees the right to wage an insurrection against the federal government. And- you would have thought, and you've already said, well, that third one is just nuts. That can't be what it says, right? I would have said the second one is kind of nuts, too. And for a long time, everybody said that, including the Supreme Court, said the second one was nuts. It is not an individual right to bear arms. You may or may not, we may or may not agree that you know people can own guns, but it's not the Second Amendment that guarantees that. It's really just about having a militia. But now, now that the court has sanctioned the individual rights argument in addition to the militia argument, which was historically always understood. There's a lot of movement toward interpreting the Second Amendment to guarantee the right to stage an insurrection. And like this is partly in defense of those members of Congress who applauded the insurrection on January 6th of 2021 at the Capitol, that this kind of 
insurrectionary Second Amendment argument is moving toward legitimate, you know, ordinary political discourse in some parts of the country so that the white supremacist organizations that participated in the January 6th insurrection think of themselves as embodying the promise of the Second Amendment. There's a great... So it was a great piece by Gary Wills years ago after people probably forgotten the bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building in 1996 by Timothy McVeigh. He was an insurrectionist and he believed he was doing his Second Amendment duty to try to take down the federal government as an insurrectionist. And, you know, at that point, there were, there were a lot of uh, public discussion about where did anybody under get this idea that the Second Amendment offers this guarantee. And Gary Wills wrote a great piece where he's like, what government puts into its constitution the right to violently overthrow the government, right? Like we have in this U.S. Constitution a right to amend, right? Like this Article 5 is you can amend the constitution. There is no right to overthrow the government violently. Like that's just not a part of our constitutional arrangement. That's arrangement. That's what the Civil War was about. Like, was there even a right to secede? No. Turns out there is no right to secede from the Union. But you know, listen carefully. Put your ear to the ground. You can hear there's just a lot of rumbling about. Oh yeah, there is actually a right to insurrection. And do you think this Supreme Court would allow it? I mean, I don't know what the limits are of this. So th- this court could be in place with its current makeup, or at least with its Republican majority, say, for a decade. Um, and you know, on some issues where people say it'll go one way, it turns out not to go that way. It's not completely predictable. And th- these people are still justices. They're not elected politicians. But what you describe, for the reasons you describe, sounds crazy. Is it within the bounds of this current court's definition of, of what's not crazy? I do not know. I really do not know. But I do know that it will be much discussed over the next year. You know, we have one year. Mm. It's 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 election day here in the U.S. tomorrow. And a year from tomorrow will be election day, presidential election. And between now and then, the court will surely be asked to weigh in on the question of whether legally Trump incited, engaged in or another way gave aid and or comfort to the insurrection on January 6th, because there are these cases in U.S. states now alleging that he is disqualified from office on the basis of the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which says that if you took an oath to support the Constitution and you um, engage in opposition to the Constitution by way of an insurrection, you're not eligible for office. So what it means to engage in an insurrection is now going to be interpreted by the courts in several states, and that will go to the Supreme Court. They will have to offer some interpretation of that. But meanwhile, these are Supreme Court justices who have seen that in their own personal lives the consequences of the political violence that has become endemic as a feature of American politics. I mean, you know, people stalking their houses, shouting them down in restaurants, you know, the kinds of uh, threats and lack of physical safety that Supreme Court justices have is is just of a very different nature and magnitude than ever before. I, I have to hope that they can't offer up a constitutional interpretation that legitimates violent insurrection against the government. But one begins to wonder. So we're going to come on to Trump and January the 6th. And I should say that we're recording this as he's 
just started giving testimony in one of the many cases that he faces. This is the one about his business affairs in New York. I don't know what he be, what he's been saying. I can guess. We won't we won't live live podcast it or whatever it is that people do. But I wanted to want to ask you one other question about America and its exceptional violence. One way of putting it, which is the number of people in the United States who are in jail, which is so outside anything that happens in comparable, certainly European countries. So I was looking at the figures in the United States. It's roughly, I think, one in every 200 people is behind bars because it's 500 in 100,000. So it's three times higher than the UK. And the UK is three times higher than Norway. So that's the sort of order of magnitude. And of course, the United States is a big country. So we're talking about more than 2 million people, which is an awful lot of people. So gun violence is discussed a lot. And it is a, it's, it's a real political issue in the sense that people talk about it all the time. People on the left talk about abolishing the carceral state and so on. And that, I think, is not a vote winner. But the brute fact of the ways in which the United States of America is a massive outlier on this and what that does to a society to put so many people behind bars, unless I'm missing it, it doesn't, does it get discussed? Is it, I mean, is this something that could move politically? Because it's such a brutal fact of American, modern, contemporary American life. Yeah, I mean, it, it it got a fair amount of play during the George Floyd year, but mm -hmm. less play than police brutality per se, which, of course, it yeah. is a piece of, right? <laughs> Part of being brutal is arresting people <laughs> needlessly and sentencing them to harsher penalties than seem reasonable by any measure. I think that, you know, there were two big books that came out about the carceral state more or less around the same time. One was a book by Michelle Alexander called The New Jim Crow, in which she argued that the defeat of Jim Crow constitutionally by the court beginning in 1954 with Brown v. Board of Education was very swiftly replaced with the war on crime and a new form of Jim Crow, which was incarceration. And a book by my colleague Elizabeth Hinton called From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime, in which she argued she very closely followed, really followed the money from Lyndon Baines Johnson's War on Poverty, part of the Great Society, his kind of liberal civil rights mission of the 1960s, into under Johnson's presidency. People sometimes associate this really with Nixon's rise, but really it was under Johnson's presidency. He abandoned the War on Poverty and redirected that money into the so-called War on Crime. And that's the kind of the signal move. So both of those books identify the 1960s, early 1970s, the rise of kind of law and order as a part of the conservative insurgency as the, the turning point. But I think there's actually just a much bigger and longer history to the way in which our rates of incarceration and the style of American policing First of all, they really are kind of consequent to the, the fact of guns, right? If so many civilians have guns, policing is going to look different. And that's a point that's very seldom made. But meanwhile, they're, they're a consequence. Our policing is a consequence of our foreign policy, right? So U.S.-style policing, which was essentially the militarization of the police, started after the First World War. When you see all these police chiefs appointed in big cities, it really started after the Spanish-American War, Spanish-Philippines War in the 1890s, men would American men would go to fight in these wars, get their military training, 
in the U.S. Army, come back, become police chiefs, and the U.S. government would have a lot of excess military equipment that they would sell to these police departments. And I'm not talking about after Vietnam or after Iraq, Afghanistan, although that's certainly the case. I'm talking, you know, after the First World War. And so police departments are just outfitted with a kind of assault weapon and, you know, later in urban, you know, like L.A., like the helicopters, the ten, sort of the Humvees. That That's unimaginable to me, the sort of like the, the Humvee with the machine gun style weaponry on the top, like going through an urban environment. But that is increasingly how American policing, I think, sees itself, this sort of notion of a kind of warrior police. So I guess I just think it's this sort of nexus of responding to an armed civilian population, the arming and training of U.S. police through foreign wars, and the profiteering, essentially, of on arms and munitions that is a, that contributes to it as well. So you know we can we can examine the whole sort of structural racism piece of it and sentencing and the kind of politics of it. But I think in a deeper way, there really is a smaller and smaller proportion of American life that feels truly civil because so much of our life has become militarized. What's so striking to me about that is to go back to where I started. So that sounds like Germany, right, in the 1920s or the 1930s. You know, after a war, a lot of weapons, the militarization of society, including of policing, of basic law and order, you know, the, the risk that law and order would be enforced at the point of a gun because a lot of people were coming back from a war and were occupying those kinds of roles. But that's 1920s, 1930s Germany. So you're right. talking about, you know, right. 1920s America went through a, a similar experience, but something about the combination of all the things that we've been talking about, gun ownership, the constitutional setup of the country, presumably the federal system and the state-based system and everything else, means there is this weird continuity, whereas for all sorts of reasons in Europe, there's a very clear break, including, of course, the experience of the Second World War, but still, mm -hmm. and, and the rebuilding of, of states after that war. But it, you know, what you just described really captures to me the ways in which there is a continuity from the 1920s to the 2020s in the United States, which is very unusual. Mm -hmm. Although I think in the US, if I think about the 1930s or the 1920s versus now, there was the chastening of actual war, where due to the draft in the First World War, you know, large numbers of American men saw service in the First World War and certainly in the Second World War. And you see service in a war, you don't love war. You don't come home and are thrilled to play with your guns as toys. In the U.S., because we don't have a draft, it is really the poor who fight American wars. And it used to be the case, you know, even just two generations ago, that most members of Congress were either themselves veterans of military service or had family members who were veterans of like sons or daughters. And that is almost unheard of at this point in American history. So, you know, Eisenhower famously said like, no, you don't really want, you don't want to, you don't want a military commander in chief. Like, you, you know, you want to, the great thing about the American system, we have a civilian president, but you actually don't want someone who's never fought in an army or served in the military in the office, Eisenhower said, because people that that have never fought in a war are going to be too casual about involving themselves in one. And, you know, we have since George W. Bush, we have not had uh, an American president who was a veteran, right? So 
you know, Biden got away with deferments. Trump came up with his crazy bone spur arguments. You know, Obama was too young. Bill Clinton dodged the draft. You know, it goes a long way back for um, an American president to have suffered and seen war. And it leads to a kind of callous disregard, I think, for the consequences of war and for the lives of the poor men and women who fight in our name. So that there is a kind of everywhere in American life, a weird glorification of, you know, camo clothing and these assault rifles and black ninja gear and the kind of, you know, this commodification. You could walk into a Walmart and there's just going to be tons of like call of duty merchandising. And it's not that people have gone out and fought heroically to save Europe against, you know, from Hitler. It's that it's just a kind of marketing thing, but it really is ubiquitous. So it feels very different. I mean, I remember in 2016, I, I reported for The New Yorker on the presidential nominating conventions. And the, Cleveland was a Republican convention and Philadelphia was a Democratic convention. In both places, there are a lot of these like solitary guys wandering around outside. In Cleveland, you could carry guns. There was like a open carry law, I think. And in Philadelphia, you couldn't, but they were all like in their military gear. And, you know, they weren't guys who served two terms in Afghanistan. There were guys who, you know, worked at the liquor store on the corner and played video games at night. But they're carrying guns, you know, like they were there in order to provoke a confrontation about their right to carry an assault-style military weapon around an American city neighborhood and threaten people. And that's what to them had become America. Like the gross violation that that represents to people who actually serve in the military really is devastating to me. I mean, I think about my dad who served in the Second World War and how appalled he would be by the idea that that represents something American. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I want to ask you about something else you said in that essay about the two conventions in, in 2016. The United States of America is built on the idea of political representation. It's there in the Constitution. The reason it's a republic, not a democracy, is it's about, you know, it's it's the origination of that idea in many ways comes with the founding of the United States. You are to be represented and that is how you are to be governed. And you say that's the idea that's under most strain at the moment both ways, because there are lots of people who don't want to be represented because they want to speak for themselves and they're sick of having a political class represent them. And then there are quite a lot of people who are quite happy to sort of completely franchise out their judgment to someone and whatever that person says is fine by them. 
and there's none of the back and forth. And th this is not a uniquely American phenomenon by any means, but it may be particularly acute for a country that's constitutionally founded on this idea. That strain has got worse, I would say, since 2016. And I don't mean it's all unhealthy either, because there are reasons to rail against political representation, to want more direct democracy, or to want maybe more expertise and not to have representatives, but to have doctors deciding about the pandemic or whatever it is. But the pressure on the idea of political representation is getting more acute, I feel. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, if you think about, you know, the three elements of democratic functioning are participation, representation and deliberation. I mean, I think deliberation is probably under greater strain, but representation comes in, in a, cl a close second there. I think that the I'm not sure people even understand the idea anymore or or even the idea that, you know, when you make a, a decision on Election Day, that you're meant to think not only about your own self-interest, but what is best for everyone. That just that general idea that or that and that you are, if you're electing candidates, you're electing them to represent not just you and advancing your own interests, but they're representing your community, that sense of the, the collective piece of that. And the way that people live online, especially by way of social media, really erases the idea of representation, right? It becomes invisible to you. It's completely obscured by the notion that you are there representing yourself. And as you say, you know, there are certainly advantages to that, but voicing your own preferences is meaningless absent the act of either representation or deliberation. Right? Like if you're not going to actually, you know, I have chosen you, David, to, you know, we voted for you to represent this, this neighborhood and the next deliberations about whether the elementary school should consolidate. You know, I've told you what I think. I know all our neighbors have told you what they think. And now you're out telling, you know, you're going to vote whichever way seems best to you because we've also chosen you for your judgment to go to these meetings about whether the elementary school should consolidate into a single aggregate school or something. But if we're all going to go and we're not going to elect you to represent us in these deliberations, then we have to go and actually listen to what other people are saying who want to do the other thing and deliberate with them. <laughs> like you can't. You know, we don't just all get to raise it like you have to either you're going to represent us and we're choosing you for your judgment or we're all going to go and then we actually have to listen. So you got to be willing to do those things. And there's not there are not a lot of structures. Uh, and I, as you say, I don't think this is a uniquely American thing. They're just not, not an awful lot of structures that make that possible. I mean, I even think this would be a goofy thing to give an example of. During the pandemic, you, you know, when you go out and you give a talk, as I'm sure you do many times, and you, you, during the pandemic, when people started giving talks in person again, no one wanted, I guess people didn't want to hold on to a microphone or speak into it, like let their germs get all over a microphone and then pass it to someone else. So a lot of places where you'd go to give a, give a talk for the Q&A, they would say, oh, we're going to put up like a VR code on the screen and people can like type in a question and then we'll have a moderator filter through the questions and ask you basically the easy questions and we'll filter out the nutters who are going to, you know, have some crazy state. And so even like giving a talk, like you think about the history of like lyceum movements and how public lectures were so instrumental to 
you know, the advance of political ideas all over the world or challenging of political ideas all over the world. Now you go, it's this anesthetic thing where you're, you know, someone hands you a tweet that you're supposed to answer. You're in a room with 300 people and no one even speaks. So, I mean, what I talk now, I say like, I'm sorry, we're going to do the microphones. Like I only take questions from the floor and people have to be willing to hold on to a microphone and say their piece into it. And I want to hear your actual voice. But just think about that reproduced 10,000 fold, like just the absence of your basic Q&A in a room where people don't even trust one another to like ask a question. You have to have them filtered. They have to be read by someone else. You're like, okay, I understand that if you're going to be on Facebook, it's going to be hard to deliberate maybe, but you're in a room with 300 people. Can't we deliberate here? But there's just so much momentum toward something wholly different than the actual work of representation and deliberation. So now Trump, finally. In your essay about January the 6th, you say that one of the problems is the relentless focus on the man himself and the, the, the looming various legal court cases that we got coming up are going to many of them focus on the man himself. Or you feel them circling around him as we get to the, whatever is going to be the denouement of this story. But to go back to where we started, you rightly said to me, this decade is unusual in many respects, not least because of the pandemic. And you say you've got to understand what happened on January the 6th in short as well as longer historical context. This is this was a very unusual time. It was a very unusual election. It was an election. It wasn't totally clear it would happen. You know, no election has ever been postponed in American history. And Trump wanted to postpone it. And because he wanted to postpone it, it seemed like an insane idea. But in the background, there was a possibility that the mechanics of electoral politics would break down. Would people be able to go and, and vote? The relentless focus on the man himself is part of the danger of the man himself, isn't it? It does miss out what you rightly say is the key question about January the 6th, which is, what did the other, well, you know, what did all the people there think they were doing? I mean, there's the question about, did he incite it? Did he knowingly this, knowingly that? Did he conspire? But there is another question, which is, I think, a more interesting historical question, which is what was going on behind this? Yeah. And I think, you know, to give credit to the January 6th committee, what it decided to do was to prepare a bill of indictments for the Justice Department to use in prosecuting Trump because the Justice Department had not been interested in prosecuting Trump for all the political reasons that you wouldn't really want to prosecute an ex-president, no matter how dire the allegations. And and that was you know, that was a decision that they made, that they would not answer the broad questions, you know, why did so many Americans believe the election was stolen? Why do so many Americans, you know, majority of Republicans, including the current Speaker of the House, you know, continue to maintain that the election was stolen? That they just wouldn't answer those questions, that the urgent thing to do was to prepare a bill of indictment that could be used to indict Trump. So they did what they tried to do. But I think, you know, it, it didn't convince, certainly their report didn't convince anybody who believed that the election was stolen, that it wasn't stolen, even in spite of the incredible wealth of evidence that they presented about the just elaborate, even crazier than you can imagine, schemes to attempt to overturn the election. But there were just some basic things that it's frustrating to watch the press and its complicity, in a way, in not really challenging Trumpism by not taking some responsibility for its own role in that election and in the perception that it might have been stolen. So, for you know, what I pointed out in my piece was, you know, nowhere in this whatever, like thousand page report on January 6th is that was there any mention that 
it was possible to be very upset about how the election went procedurally. And in fact, completely understandable and reasonable to be upset procedurally because it was really weird. It was the height of, you know, November 4th, I think it was 2020, it was the height of the pandemic. If you were going to go out to vote in person, it wasn't going to be. I mean, I love going to vote. I love going to buy the baked goods from the scouts and the PTA at the neighborhood school and waiting in line and chatting with people and getting coffee and getting the little sticker that says I voted and going behind the red, white and blue curtain. Like we have all these rituals, you know, about voting. And I love it. It's incredibly fun. Like I used to always take my kids in a backpack or, you know, whatever. People do. People like to vote. People who like to vote like to vote. But it wasn't that kind of an election day. It was unbelievably grim and sad. Everybody was masked. There was no line. There were no snacks. You had to move through quickly. There was no friendliness. It was just super weird. And you knew that most people in my neighborhood didn't vote in person because they voted by mail. And everybody understood because Trump had told his supporters not to vote by mail, that the majority of mail-in ballots were going to be Democratic ballots. And so this was one of the reasons that it was going to be such a difficult election to predict. And on election day, all the major news organizations made, you know, a kind of a brief performance of saying, we won't really know who won for a few days because there will be this thing called the red mirage, which means that because Republicans will disproportionately vote in person and those ballots will be counted on election as soon as possible, but Democrats will disproportionately vote by mail and those votes won't be counted for hours, days, possibly even weeks later, it's going to look like Republicans are winning everywhere. So there will be a red mirage. And they would say this, it's a little bit like when Orson Welles broadcast War of the Worlds in 1938 and he said like, Every, like, 20 minutes, this is fake. This is actually a fake broadcast. But, like, nobody <laughs> heard that, and he didn't want them to. He wanted it to seem fake. Like, the, you know, CNN or Fox, everybody wanted uh, on election night as the returns came in and polls closed and they put up the maps and they have the holograms. And, you know, it's a huge moneymaker for, tele for cable television and for network television to have huge audiences on election night. They didn't really want to say, we can't tell you who won. And so they participated in the fiction that it was possible to know who won. And it seemed like Trump was winning until suddenly, like a lot of these polls, like they had pre-counted their mail-in ballots and then they kind of dumped those numbers in all at once. Or So it did sort of seem we were like, wait, how did we just get from Trump was winning by X percentage and now Biden's winning by just like one tenth of X. News organizations take some responsibility for that and they never admitted that. They, they, there's never been any kind of attention to that or any, you know, any substantial attention to that. There's not really been discussion yet about how to think about the 2024 election, how to educate people about how the voting works and how the tallying works. So for me, the January, there were so many, and that's just one thing, like there were a lot of other things that the January 6th committee might have taken into account uh, about what happened on January 6th. And and this is not to say, and I don't mean to suggest that people who came, you know, with knives hidden in their pockets and, or, you know, came and took barricades and made them into spikes and attacked police officers, that these people were duped by CBS News. Those people are insurrectionists. <laughs> they were trying to take over the Capitol violently for reasons of their own. And the, the con confusion over the election was that they weren't 
you know, they weren't naive about that. But in terms of the, you know, the 40 percent of Americans who still believe the election was stolen, a lot of those people genuinely believe the election was stolen and it hasn't become clear to them that that's not the case. And that's a huge challenge. And these trials coming up for Trump, the four criminal trials, at least two of which are likely to happen before the election or to begin before the election, you know, are an opportunity for that educative work and some kind of reckoning. But they really will, as you suggest, call all our attention back on Trump. And Trump, I think, is said to be hoping to use the trials to essentially argue that he won the election. Like, that's his objective with the trials. So think about what that, (laughs) to say that he hijacks the press isn't right. I mean, he's the former president of the United States, but the contortion of the media that that will involve. And then you have this armed population, this (laughs) kind of thirst for the idea that insurrection is legitimate. And you have a very volatile 12 months lying ahead. My memory of that election night was I'd read enough, not, not as well informed as you, but I knew there was a red mirage. I knew about the sequencing and so on. So I sort of steeled myself for it. I was watching it on CNN. And then I found myself thinking, yeah, I know that, but these guys are really pushing this line that Trump is doing better than people thought. And then in my naive way, I always think, well, let's get a dispassionate view. Let's look at the betting markets. And the betting markets had Trump as a 60% chance, 70% chance, an 80% chance. So when I went to bed, Trump was an 80% chance. I thought, right, they must know because they must know about the red mirage, blah, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. then when I woke up and realized it had all been overblown, I thought, well, I was watching it on CNN and I was checking the betting markets and I went to bed believing that Trump was won. So imagine what Trump thinks. That was my first thought. He yeah, was watching it yeah, on Fox yeah. News. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. imagine what, how irresponsible to allow... You know, if if they're going to persuade me that he's won, they're definitely going to have persuaded him that he won. I mean, I know yeah, it sounds and, a bit egotistical, right. but you know what I mean, right? Right, right. right. And imagine, you know, you, you live in Kentucky and in your neighborhood, everybody you know is a Trump supporter and you go to bed thinking Trump won and you wake up like it's been stolen. Like it's how, how have they not been held accountable for that? So I want to ask you one last or maybe two last sort of big questions. Given everything that we've said, what do you feel when people talk about a second civil war or or make so I've made you and I've made comparisons I've made comparisons back a hundred years but people want to sometimes go further back some you know a lot of people want to go back to the founding of the republic but other people want to talk about the 1840s 50s 60s and where we are now when you hear that kind of talk what does it what does it say to you having said all that I've just said which was probably highly inflammatory of me I tend to think that stuff is mostly overblown and that it's a lot of people who know they can get airtime on CNN if they say the thing, you know, or more likely they can get airtime on MSNBC if they say the thing. So it alarms me for its alarmism. Like, I think it's commodifying the alarm. And that doesn't strike me as helpful. I also, honestly, I don't as a historian, find it responsible to say, and maybe I want to be clear that it doesn't appear that I have said, oh, American political history is riddled with political violence and political intolerance and political chicanery. And therefore, this is just the same as ever. And it's fine because it's not fine. It wasn't fine then. And it's not fine now. And right, like it, what the reason that the country still exists and we haven't had another civil war and that 
to a considerable degree, the march of equal rights for all has been a largely successful one, is that the political institutions and, in fact, the constitutional settlements that we have uh, made have brought great stability and prosperity to this country and presumably will continue to do so. So I think the people that want to focus just on Trump want to think, oh, if he were just defeated, if he happened to, you know, peacefully die in his sleep tonight, all would be well. You know, all won't be well. But I don't think we're at the very edge of a a civil war. And I do think there are a lot of people operating in good faith at the level of sort of small scale and especially local uh, social and political movements who are trying to rebuild the civic institutions and civilian life and spirit of community that has been so compromised by so many different challenges in the United States over the last 10, 20 years. And so I have a, I have a lot, I have a lot of faith in that. I think my beef really is with honestly, like the, the, the moment and not to make it, I don't, you know, the the press is not the enemy, (laughs) but there is just a lot of riling up of the public on the kind of outrage machine that was social media has infected mainstream reporting in the United States so that, you know, you hear about the town meeting where people came to blows and there's a kind of relish in that. Oh, because that augurs civil war. And, you you know, you don't hear about the town that has a new initiative to have the parks be repaired by high schoolers who are come from all the different city high schools and meet one another. And then there's been this kind of great kind of political add-on, knock-on effect. Or, you know, you just don't hear those stories. Um, so I, I worry about I worry about the historian who goes on CNN and predicts the Civil War, because I don't think that's a responsible activity. Last thing. We, I did a podcast not that long ago with Gary Gerstle, whom you know, the historian, and we were talking about the history of the Republican Party specifically. But at the end, we were talking about, as it were, what might give or what might break. And he was focused on Congress. And he said he thought that the big risk in this age of brinkmanship was that one of these budget negotiations, one of these sort of pieces of brinkmanship about the debt and the possibility of default, it'll tip over the line. And this Republican Party at some point will cross that line. And I suspect under the current congressional leadership, it's more, not less likely. And that's the thing that will be both the crisis and the wake-up call that could change this. And it's partly, he didn't say this, but I think of that Grover Norquist line about getting the government small enough that you can drown it in a bathtub. And the one thing that hasn't happened is the government has not got any smaller. So it's it's bigger, Mm -hmm. it's more complicated than it's ever been. And this is Michael Lewis's point in the fifth risk, you know, that the real risk now in an age of extraordinary complexity, including at the governmental level, is this kind of politics could stumble into something that just has all of these knock-on effects. So we're not talking about civil war, we're not talking about Trump, we're talking about congressional brinkmanship and money. And that's actually where the real danger lies. And also the possibility of renewal too, because something like that could spark a sense that we can't carry on like this. You can't Mm -hmm. do politics like this. Do you have any sympathy with that view that that actually that's where the danger is? It's it's one of these acts of, of brinkmanship tipping over into a knock-on crisis that everyone would feel. 
if America defaults on its debt mm-hmm. in the 21st century, it's a whole new ball game. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think that I would maybe put forward two possibilities that are kind of on either end of how change happens. One would be the kind of counterfactual. What if someone had, in fact, shot Mike Pence on January 6th or Nancy Pelosi, right? We would, have, we would be living in a very different country right now. Not, not to wish harm on anyone, but the claim that that was an innocent, you know, happy tourist activity. Wherever they, I think, as you said earlier, we're not living in an age of political assassination, but we're on the cusp of one, right? I, I wouldn't predict civil war, but I would say the chance that someone is, you know, the, the chances just seem quite high. And I think that tips us into a new era. More likely, though, I think, is a kind of slow change to the Republican Party that's not unlike the kind of, it seems wrong to call it a quiet revolution when it involved decades and decades of political struggle, but the same-sex marriage legalization and constitutional sanctioning of same-sex marriage in the United States that happened, I think, to many people seemingly invisibly through the through the um, determined visibility of LGBTQ Americans, right? So more and more people realize, oh, I know somebody who's gay, right? Like this kind of thing that happened in your lifetime, in my lifetime, that just transformed attitudes. And so I can say right now, I know women who have had to carry fetuses that were not viable for weeks and weeks and weeks because they lived in a state where they couldn't get an abortion anymore. And if I know that many women who are experiencing that kind of suffering at the hands of um, these post-Dobbs abortion, state abortion laws, then everybody does. And that is on the Republican Party. And I think that's a kind of quiet revolution that could really transform American politics. And we could wake up one day and it could seem as if, how could anybody have ever voted for these people? And that extreme arm of the party could completely fall apart. Jill Lepore's new book is called The American Beast, and it is a collection of essays about American politics over the past decade, many of them published in The New Yorker. It is a brilliant book, and I really recommend it. Please buy it from wherever you get the best books. Coming up on Past, Present, Future, next week I'm going to be resuming my ongoing conversation with the writer and political theorist Leah Ippi about how we should understand democracy And the week after that, it's another episode in the History of Ideas. And I'm going to be talking about something that connects to my conversation with Jill Lepore today, Tanahasi Coates on the case for reparations in the United States. Do please join us for all of that. And please follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas, where we will post links and news about upcoming episodes. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.